This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As you heard in Bob's news, Ottawa has just announced a massive $82 billion stimulus package to help us get through the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am sure that will go some way to relieve the anxiety and stress suffered by people who are worried about how they're going to put food on the table and pay their bills. And that is a very important aspect of this, the psychological ramifications, the ramifications of social isolation. So many people are isolated in their homes. And then there is the worry and confusion about the virus itself. Now, while the provincial government is ramping up telehealth and public health, it's still very difficult to get through to them to have your questions and concerns answered. So we are very grateful to have some experts with us today. Let me give the numbers to you. You can call in with whatever questions, concerns, comments you have. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-866. 744-740. And we begin with Dr. Nathan Stahl of Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health. Dr. Stahl, thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, you are an expert in geriatrics and, uh, you know, the older population is really the population that is most at risk from this. W- what are you seeing in your patients? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a few things we're seeing. Uh, The first is uh, the data coming in uh, of COVID-19 cases, and I'm I'm just looking now on the Public Health Agency of Canada data from this morning. Um, You know, what we are noticing for where there is age available, about a a third of the cases are 60 years of age or older. And what we know from other jurisdictions is that the more severe cases, and unfortunately the ones that result in death, which is what we're seeing at the Lynn Valley Care Facility in British Columbia, are, are happening in older adults, and they're also happening in older adults that have a lot of what we call underlying comorbidities, so other uh, pre-existing diseases or conditions that are placing them at risk. So certainly this is, uh, this is just at the front lines of the virus. This is something that's affecting older adults uh, in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned over 60. I mean, uh, these days, uh, 60 isn't that old, uh, you know, if, you, if your health is good. Yeah, so I've been asked this a lot. Uh, you know, it's not just the um, sort of objective numerical age, so to speak, you know, 60, 65, 70. Just going up a year or two is not going to necessarily increase your risk substantially. What we do know is that older age... Uh, 
is associated with a few things that we think contribute to why the virus is, is more severe in older adults. The first is as you age, uh, a phenomenon called immunosenescence happens, where your immune system becomes less sort of robust uh, than it would be when you are as a younger individual. But the other thing is, as I, as I touched on before, older adults, as you age, uh, you tend to accumulate more diseases or conditions. And these conditions and diseases are placing people at risk of having serious complications from the infection. And then finally, um, some older adults who have particularly a lot of diseases um, tend to also reside in long-term care facilities or retirement homes. And now we're starting to, or we have restricted access to these facilities, uh, but those can be a, a site where transmission can happen very quickly, again, like we saw in the care facility in British Columbia. So it's not just age alone, but it's some of the other considerations that come along with advanced age. Okay. Now, here's a question uh, that uh, th- that I've had from a lot of people. Now, I know that there's no cure, and uh, the the other vaccinations that we can get don't protect against this. But if you're an older adult and say you've had your pneumonia vaccines, will that contribute to making uh, the the symptoms? The, the pulmonary symptoms less severe if you happen to get COVID-19? Yeah, so there's a couple things. Uh, so certainly every older adult should be encouraged to get all the vaccinations that are recommended by their health care providers. Um, it, you know, w- the first thing is, uh, as we as our healthcare system is preparing and dealing with the massive surge of cases we're anticipating COVID-19, there are going to be implications on the care of all other conditions. So we want to make sure everyone's prepared and having the other conditions that they normally suffer from or normally at risk from this time of year uh, so that, you know, it, when when COVID-19 uh, you know, is is sort of pushing our healthcare system to capacity, um, people are most set up for the pre-existing conditions. The question about uh, whether vaccinating will impact on the COVID-19 infection itself, um, you know, we don't have all the data from this, but what we, what we do suspect, and we know this from other illnesses, is not everyone's dying from the, or experiencing significant complications just from the COVID-19 infection itself. Some people are dying from complications related to it. So uh, there's data coming out that suggests uh, what are known as cardiovascular complications are happening. So uh, they may be having a heart attack or be pushed into heart failure, and that's what's resulting in their death, not necessarily the COVID-19 pulmonary infection itself. And the other thing is there that we know that people who get COVID-19 are at risk of what, what are called secondary bacterial infections. So they may get another bacterial infection, and that's some of the, the bugs that can be prevented or, or at least help to reduce the severity of the infection when you get vaccinated. So certainly taking care of your overall health as you would with your primary care practitioner, getting vaccinated, these are all essentially important. Is that sort of uh, like the situation where the flu, where it's not necessarily the flu itself, but a lot of people get pneumonia after they've had the flu? Absolutely. So that's a great that's a great comparator, and, and it's certainly the reason why everyone should get vaccinated for all the re- the recommended vaccines they need. Okay, uh, hold on. I would like to bring in uh, Michelle Larivière, and uh, that's a clinical psychologist and professor at Laurentian University. Hello and welcome. Hello and thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. And uh, Dr. Larivière, uh, the psychological aspects of this, uh, I would think, are very significant, and a lot of people are just very anxious. They are very anxious, and 
the best psychological explanation for the anxiety is, is really uncertainty. And as, as a species, we, we really don't tolerate uncertainty uh, for very long and, and, and or too intensely. So wh- what do you say to people? What can people do to lessen their anxiety? I mean, exercise is one thing that comes to mind. We've been told we can go for walks. I, I know it's not as easy as when all the gyms are open. Yeah. Well, certainly those basic things that are always recommended to us, like like exercise and, uh, you know, even taking walks and getting some sunlight on our face are, are good. But how we think about this whole issue is also important. So, for instance, it's important uh, for us to, to remember that uh, we shouldn't be overestimating the danger at all times, and we shouldn't be underestimating our capacity either individually or collectively, to solve problems. And so I'll often tell clients, uh, you know, to ask themselves if they're overestimating dangers and underestimating themselves. When the answer is yes, then we try to think about things a little differently. And uh, we just heard about a a massive economic stimulus uh, plan, and I'm thinking that that should alleviate a lot of anxiety because a lot of people are just worried. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to stay in my home? How am I going to put food on the table? Uh, because a lot of people have seen their incomes caught off, cut, cut off in one fell swoop. Yes, absolutely. So that, that'll help, I think, address at least some of the uncertainty. And of course, it generates other uncertainties and other questions like how much to whom and when and how to proceed and when people don't have answers to some of those questions, the tolerance for, for, for uncertainty is so great among some of us that uh, we'll even make up stories because at least it fills in the gaps of our uncertainty and our knowledge. And, and that's where things can get a little, a little dicey. What do you mean make up stories? Well, in social media, for, for, oh. for instance, um, you know, rumors will start, and those rumors sometimes become fact, and then facts, uh, so-called facts, are shared broadly. And then, if, if they're not accurate, then then that, that's that's often worse than the actual issue we're trying to, to deal with. Okay, well, that's what uh, we've been trying to uh, tell people here. We are very careful about the facts. The information we give out is accurate. Uh, so let us go to the phones for uh, both the doctors we have on the line. We have Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how's everybody? Fine, how are you doing? I'm hanging in. My question is, uh, I still know the answer. If someone were to catch this and get through it, can it be caught again? Or have you, do you build up some immunity to it? Dr. Stahl? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, we don't know the answer to this at this point. I mean, we have to recognize we're dealing with something that uh, just started to emerge in late 2019 uh, in, in Asia. Uh, we have some data now on sort of what the emerging or, or, or the clinical course of these patients were. Um, there is some experimental work uh, that's that's been reported in the scientific literature using the actual serum of patients who have been infected with COVID-19, trying to put that into other individuals to, to promote immunity. But certainly uh, there is no uh, widespread or widely accepted evidence in the scientific community to suggest uh, that there is immunity. 
And with that in mind, what's important is that if you have had COVID-19 and you do get sick again uh, or have had exposure to somebody uh, who has COVID-19, you still need to follow the same precautions that you would the first time around. But this is a, a question that's on the mind of many scientists and researchers and, uh, and will be uh, investigated for sure. Okay, Daryl, that's the best we can do. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's go to Pat in St. Catharines. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon, I should say. How are you? Fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm not doing too bad. Um, I uh, I kind of saw this coming when it was in Italy and that and stocked up on everything. So, um, okay, that way. I'm 80 years old and I have lymphoma. It's low grade. The only thing I'm concerned is is about using the washers and dryers in this apartment building. There's 36 apartments. And uh, I, I don't have any bleach in the house. I'm thinking I should maybe bleach before, put it on an empty cycle and bleach the... Um, I, I'm going to let a doctor uh, answer that. Okay. Dr. Sure. Stoll. So, um, you know, there's a couple things. So just to remind people about how the, the virus spreads... Uh, the virus uh, is what call, is what called uh, droplet contact. Okay, so most people are either or who are getting infected, we believe, are uh, either in close proximity to someone who is coughing or sneezing up the particles that then get released, or they're landing on a surface and then somebody else is having contact with them, getting them on their hands and then rubbing them into their face, uh, where they're being introduced into what are known as their mucous membranes. So the key is for something like this is if you're entering a, a place that's a commonly used area, like the laundry facilities, is uh, that, one, you try as much as possible to avoid touching your face. Two is to wash your hands after you use that. With respect to, um, you know, the virus living on surfaces um, within the washing machine and itself, uh, you know, it's some of these... Um, relevant and day-to-day questions. We don't exactly know all the answers to it. Some data came out yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, suggesting that the virus could potentially live in particles uh, on hard surfaces for up to two days. So hopefully buildings like you're in have have started to um, sort of advance and upgrade the environmental protocols, meaning cleaning facilities and door handles that are commonly used. And so the best advice I could give you would be to sort of avoid touching your face, wash your hands, and we also have to count on the goodwill of everyone else to... I'm not concerned about, because I have uh, some, some, you know, the nitrile gloves to wear. Yeah. And I'm not I'm only concerned about putting my clothes in a washing machine where someone has... Who knows if they if they had the virus or they're sick or yeah, um, I would suspect would again that, that it's pretty low risk because the it's going through a full wash cycle with soap and water. And hot, right? no, I wash in hot. I would wash. I wash in hot water. Yeah, I would yeah, think that uh, that probably would do it, wouldn't it, doctor? Probably. You, well, yeah, I wouldn't have I'd to bleach, bleach ahead of time and run it on an empty cycle before I use it. I wouldn't yeah, think. So. I'd actually be more concerned about the door handle than. Uh, yeah, that's okay because I, I I'm sure I know okay, that. Yeah, I, I was just concerned about putting my clothes okay. in a. We need one person speaking at, at a time. I think uh, we've answered your question, Pat. Thank um, you very much. I all appreciate it. All the best it. to you. Thank you. Yeah, so it's it's the surfaces and and uh, if you're lucky enough to have a wipe 
or something that resembles a wipe. You maybe wipe the washing machine before you touch it. But um, I think doctor and especially I think people are being advised to wash on the hottest cycle that's possible for whatever you're washing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think that that would be prudent in these times. Uh, it's really soap and, and water and, and really the other, the, base, the, the simpler stuff more upstream of just maintaining good, high, good hand hygiene and avoiding coming out when you're sick because then we wouldn't have to deal with some of these issues. Okay. Dr. Larry Bierre, is, is there a danger of people getting kind of too bogged down? I mean, we want everyone to be safe and, it's, it, and be aware and it's different, but is, is there a chance of people sort of obsessing on this and maybe getting too down in the weeds on it? There's certainly that chance, and, and and the concern there is uh, is if we get too uh, activated through through panic kind of um, situations, if we get too panicky about things, then our our ability to problem solve decreases. So, good problem solving requires some amount of emotional self regulation, and so while we want people to be vigilant, got to find the sweet spot between vigilance and panic um, because that's that's where we ought to be. I think it is a time for vigilance. It's not a great time for panic almost ever. Almost ever. Is is there anything that people can do, like deep breathing or something like that, that can calm them down if, if they feel that they're veering into uh, panic? That's a, that's a great question. And a lot of techniques out there will, will address the direct physiological implications of anxiety and panic and people would be able to to youtube uh, many of these things like um progressive muscle relaxation or diaphragmatic breathing or guided imagery or meditation those are all exercises that even 15 20 minutes a day can be sufficient to to bring down our a level of activation and in doing so you know helps our clear our minds on the one hand but also you know it helps us from from becoming too depleted physically from all the worrying. Dr. Stahl, we know that social isolation can be deadly for older people. Uh, You know, what about the fact that this is now going to be a problem for a much larger swath of people? Yeah, so this is another question I'm getting asked all the time. Yes, we're right that social isolation and loneliness are already... uh, epidemic among older adults. What we have to recognize, though, is that the, the mortality and sort of morbidity risks, uh, so meaning how people are going to die and how people are going to suffer associated with loneliness, we consider these to be more of something that happens over, for the, most people over the course of months to years, right? So we're, we're trying to talk about a trade-off here when we're socially distancing people and, and in some cases isolating people. When we're talking about coronavirus, this is something that's going to kill in days to weeks if someone gets infected with it. So that doesn't mean that we totally socially isolate and ignore that loneliness and social isolation are a problem. We just have to recognize the risk-benefit here. And there are many other ways that uh, we are hoping people will engage in isolated older adults, whether that's changing the way they visit to using technology, so the Prime Minister has highlighted using things like FaceTime, um, changing the way social programming are run in, in residential care facilities. Yes, it's a concern, the social isolation and loneliness, but we have to put into perspective what we're trying to prevent here. There's also the telephone, and, and what do you say to people there? I, I know that it's hard to 
do something new. I mean, there are a lot of older adults who are totally tech savvy and totally, you know, they FaceTime their grandchildren and they're all set up. But there are also others who say, I can't do this. What do you say to them? Yeah, and there are also the ones who are cognitively impaired, right? That, yeah. It, that, that can't even, couldn't even, even if, you know, someone could set it up for them, they may not understand what they're engaging with. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, this is not going to have a one-size-fits-all solution for how to interact or, or engage with people. The telephone works. I mean, we've even seen, if you've been following the news, people who are actually engaging with their older adults through the window at some of the care facilities. Oh, I, there was that beautiful picture. It yes. was from somewhere in the United States of a, a, a young woman knocking on the window, seeing her grandmother and, and showing her diamond ring to show that she just got engaged. Yes. I mean, and so, I mean, these things can't be, you know, uh, these are important moments, right? And the, and there are also increasingly, uh, at sort of a rapid pace, a number of concerts that are being live-streamed, a number of other uh, public institutions that are uh, opening up for virtual programming. There are a lot of things that have emerged that people can take advantage of, but you're right, older adults may need someone to help them set up that technology, and it also may not work for everyone who's cognitively impaired. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Okay. Let me give the numbers out again. We do have a few more minutes in this segment. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll take a call from Julia. Hi, Julia. Hi. Um, so I want to address this term that has become so uh, mainstream, social distancing, which um, I think that I read something from a psychologist who specializes in anxiety, and he suggested the word physical distancing because we're really not trying to isolate ourselves socially, but really to spread, to flatten the curve and reduce the spread of the virus physically. So um, we're very concerned right now about depression and anxiety, and I thought that would be something that would be a good change. And Julie, are you, are you feeling anxious about all this? I am. Uh, as are most people. Yes. And, you know, I already spend a lot of time alone because I work from home. But I have to say that um, this particular situation even affects me more than I would have expected. So, but I am trying to stay in touch with friends through the phone and other ways. So it's really the physical part that is more of an issue. And, um, and that's how the virus is spread. So I think people can remain socially in touch, but as I said, the word physical distancing would be maybe be more appropriate and accurate and would bring down the anxiety level of everyone. Uh, Dr. Larry Vier, do you have anything to say to Julia? I think it's an excellent point. I, I agree with the listener. I think uh, social distancing, to me at least, feels a bit like a, it feels like a misnomer. Well, it feels like an imprisonment. And, you know, that's what we do to, tor- to torture people, right? So, um, so why put everybody under that when really the thing is about physical distancing? So I, I think it would be a really good service to maybe put that new term out there because maybe it's more appropriate and more accurate. Okay, well, And Julie- would bring down people's anxiety levels. Julia, thank you for making that point and all the best to you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, uh, Dr. Larry Vera, one thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, the whole issue of resilience 
how do people build resili- resilience? Because some people obviously cope better than others. Right. Resilient people tend to be folks who um, don't who, who won't necessarily perceive excessive threat in all things. Um, they they may be mindful of threats that exist, but they also tend to see opportunities and 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 way different ways of doing things that that give them that sense of empowerment that make them feel like they're making uh, change or in control of a few things as well. Can you build resilience? Do you have advice for people on that? Yeah, I do. It's not something we're necessarily born with or born without. Resilience comes often from from being able to see things in ways that aren't always just pure threats, that they are things from which to grow and to improve and, and do things differently going forward. And I, I think this entire crisis actually will help us do things a lot differently. Oh, I think there will be a lot of things that we do very differently when this is all over. Um, Dr. Stahl, has it informed your practice? Have you, have you changed things? Are you about to change things? Absolutely. So I think that there are ways that it will inform practice for the better and, and certainly for the worse. One of the things that uh, I think we've been pushing a lot in, in healthcare is the adoption of more virtual technologies to yeah. serve uh, patients. And certainly we're doing that now from an infection control perspective, uh, but I think we may see long-lasting effects of this uh, in terms of the massive and rapid uptake we've seen in virtual healthcare, and that's just one example. Oh, th- I think uh, that's the key. I mean, I, I know the government is looking to virtual healthcare to alleviate capacity problems, hallway healthcare, and I think it's going to come on a lot faster than anyone imagined because of this. I mean, that's, I think we both agree on that. Yep, absolutely. Okay, uh, I am going to take a call from Tom in Etobicoke. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hello, you're on the air, Tom. Hi. Hi, Libby. Uh, just have a, a question. I am a reasonably recent uh, heart attack patient in November of 18. I am, for all intents and purposes, healthy. Doctor advises I basically have a new heart, and I'm following all the right things, uh, lots of weight loss. I'm told my heart is basically brand new, but wondering that I'm still on the medication, even though I'm taking them religiously and I'm, I'm considered healthy, am I, I'm always considered a heart disease patient, so am I at extra risk? Dr. Stahl, thanks yeah. for your call, Tom. Yeah, so, you know, it's really hard to provide individual level uh, advice to people at this time. Uh, what I can tell you is, uh, you know, what we are seeing from some emerging data, as, as I've talked about earlier on, is that some of the people are not just dying from the actual infection itself, but from some of the complications related to other organ systems, and the heart would be one. So, you know, we, we think that, that people who have uh, a heart condition like that are probably at a little bit of elevated risk compared to someone who doesn't have that. But the key things are to continue doing the things that uh, the caller mentioned, which is continuing to take the me- his medications, continuing to exercise, follow the recommendations of doctor's advice. What's good for your health before all this is going to be good for you should you catch the virus and provide you with as much reserve uh, as possible and, and, and prevent having a complication from it. Okay. Um, we uh, have to wrap things up on this segment. Uh, Dr. La- Vier, would you like to leave us with anything? 
Well, I'd, I'd like to leave you with um, the idea that to maintain social contact while respecting the excellent uh, world-class uh, physicians and and clinicians out there who uh, who are giving it, who are guiding us on how to do that effectively. And Dr. Stahl. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is trying time for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, my, my major things that I'm telling people are uh, stay calm, but do have a heightened level of vigilance. I think we talked about that today. I think one of the primary things, uh, and, uh, and you know, we've, we've touched on this as well, is get your information from a respected source. We're being overloaded and one that we know has credible information. And I think the, the bigger message here that hopefully has been brought up in this is that uh, we need to rely on one another as Canadians to get through this, and, and I think we're seeing that across the country in many different ways, uh, acts of kindness that are, are popping up, and I, I think we need to maintain hope uh, even in the setting of uh, something very serious that's going on right now. Okay, thank you both so much. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to our audience and to give us su- such useful information. Much, much appreciated. Thank you so much, Dr. Nathan Stahl and Dr. Michelle LaRiviere. Thanks for having Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.